Welcome to Crossbridge. If you are a guest with us this morning, we are so glad that you have joined us. Our hope for you is the same as it is for everybody at Crossbridge, that we would all be taking one step forward in our faith towards Jesus, because that is what we're all about. It is so great to be here with you today. It has been a long time since I've had the privilege of preaching God's word to you. In reality, it's probably been just over 18 months, but it feels like forever. If you don't know who I am, I'm Becky Fry, and I'm the Administrative Director here at Crossbridge. I'm also a small group leader and on the preaching team. My husband Joe and I have been part of Crossbridge since the beginning, and our kids are growing up here. For us, Crossbridge truly feels like family and a place where we call home. Now, if you had asked me a few years ago if Christians were united on what they thought about Jesus, I would have answered that yes, we as a global church are pretty united about who Jesus is. I knew that there were other people or faith groups that believed differently about Jesus, some who thought he was just a prophet, some who thought he was just a good moral teacher, and others who thought he was just a downright liar. But I was pretty ignorant of the debate that was still happening within the church about who Jesus is. Now, for those of you who do know me, you know that I love to read. And my reading typically falls into two different categories, historical fiction and books about our faith. So during this past year and a half, I have had a lot of extra time to read on my hand, and I actually ran out of the books by my favorite authors. And so once the library opened back up, I really enjoyed perusing the new book section. I found a lot of great books that were out there, and I even found some new favorite authors. But I also found some books that were quite troubling to me. I had initially been really excited about finding lots of new books on faith, but as I started to read them, I thought, these don't match the Jesus that I see in the New Testament or that I grew up being taught. The books quoted the Bible, they talked about Jesus, they even said that they were Christian books, but something just felt off. And I'm not talking about a main issue or, you know, a center block here on our Jenga tower. I'm talking about a difference in the main blocks, our foundations and our teachings on Jesus, what we would consider to be truth. So I started to reread Paul's New Testament writings, and I also started to read the Gospels again so that I could see what Jesus was saying about himself. And I also found some good apologetic books that really talked about why we believe what we believe, and they discussed where heresy had started to infiltrate our traditionally held beliefs. And heresy, just so we're all on the same page here, is any opinion that is greatly at odds with what is generally accepted as religious doctrine or teaching. And in doing these, these things, I realized that the same false gospels of heresy that Paul warns us about in his letters, and there's actually a warning against false teaching and heresy in 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament, that that heresy is still alive and active today. It has just been repurposed and rebranded for our current times. And that is why I am so excited about our I Believe series, where we're taking a look at the central foundational points of our faith. Through and looking at the Apostles' Creed. Now last week, Jimmy kicked off our series and he laid our foundation, our first two blocks. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth. He talked about how our first block is not just a belief that God exists in a general sense, but that we trust God as our heavenly father, the pater familius, who has complete authority over our lives. Then we looked at our second block, God created heaven and earth, and that our focus isn't on the hows or the whys or the exactly whens, but that we're acknowledging that God's power is supreme over all things, both material and spiritual. This week, we get to start talking about what we as a global church believe about Jesus. Now, before I go any further, I do feel like I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. You may get frustrated by the end of this message, or with me. You may be thinking, but what about, or you didn't cover, and you're right, I didn't because today I'm going to be taking a high-level 30,000-foot view of Jesus, and it can possibly leave you with some unanswered questions. Now, some of those we are gonna get to in the following weeks in our series, but let's just remember that our focus is on our foundational faith blocks and not on all the questions, traditions, or issues that could divide us rather than unite us. This is why creeds are so important. Remember, we said that a creed is simply a system of principles, beliefs, or standards guiding your life. A creed acts like our guardrails to let us know when we're straying off into dangerous areas around false teaching and heresy and moving away from the unchanging authoritative truth of scripture. Creeds help us define our foundation so that we can evaluate everything else based on the truth. Would you stand with me now as we recite the Apostles' Creed together? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. This week we start our focus on Jesus with our first block. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Three separate phrases that each hold so much importance for our faith. So let's break it apart. Jesus Christ. No, I didn't just curse. This name is said a lot, but I don't know that we really understand it like the original authors or most of ancient history did. Jesus was the name he was given. But Christ is not his last name. It's not Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is an adjective. It's a title given to him that in Greek means anointed or in Hebrew means Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, we're referring to Jesus as the Christ and we're declaring that he is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. This is a huge statement because it means that we're acknowledging Jesus as the one who shares the identity of Israel's God. For some listening, this might be one of your first questions. Who is Israel's God? 
And it's a great question, so thank you for asking it. For Israel, there is one God. He is God the Father, the Creator, and the one who brought them out of Egypt. He is holy and he is above all things. As Christians, we affirm that there is only one God, just like the Jewish people. But we believe in the mystery of there being one God in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity or triune isn't in the Bible, but it's our way of describing God the Father who we talked about last week, God the Son who we're talking about today, and God the Holy Spirit who we will get to in the later weeks. Think of it not as one plus one plus one equals one, but how one times one times one equals one. And while I would love to delve into this with you further, I don't have time today because it's not really our focus. But if you do have questions about this, feel free to see me or Pastor Jimmy or Pastor Will or any one of our elders, and we'd be happy to ask questions alongside of you and dig for answers in the Bible with you. And remember, if this was easy to understand, we wouldn't refer to it as a mystery. So, this section of the Creed starts with, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. This reminds us of Jesus' relationship with his Father, God the Almighty who created heaven and earth. In his letter to the church at Colossae, the Apostle Paul tried to help them understand this a little bit more. As the Father and the Son being one, Jesus participates in the creation of the earth, actually the whole world. Paul is trying to highlight to the church that Jesus has the same authority over creation that his Father does. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. The Creed is reminding us of the relationship between God and Jesus. He is his only son, and we'll get to how that happens in a little bit, but don't lose the picture of the father and son completely working together in unity. And this is where the Creed starts to get personal for us, because he's Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We've seen Jesus' title, his relationship to the Father, and now his relationship to us. It is thought that the earliest Christian confession consisted of just two words in Greek, kyrios eos Jesus, which means Jesus is Lord. So what does it mean when we say Jesus is Lord? While Lord isn't a word that we usually use in everyday language, we have a decent understanding because it is still used in historical titles or in fantasy stories. To be Lord means that someone is the supreme ruler and that no one could challenge or rival that person's authority. If I'm being honest, I know many of us would say, Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but I don't think we really believe all of it. Sure, we've trusted Jesus for our salvation from sin and death, and we'll share that great news with other people, 
But acknowledging him as our Lord, it doesn't always shine through in our language, our decisions, or our lifestyle. In our our modern times, the meaning of Jesus as Lord, the supreme ruler with no rival in our life, can often be lost to other commitments of family, political party, sports teams, church, etc. And they rival for top allegiance in our hearts. But when this was written, and throughout Roman history, the emperor considered himself to be Lord of all the people, and he mandated that he would be worshipped. For a Christian to declare that Jesus is Lord was not just some doctrinal statement that they said, but something that many of them died for. Because when we say Jesus is Lord, it means that nothing and no one is above him, not even an emperor. I wonder if Jesus our Lord carries the same weight for us today. Does it have the same sort of conviction when we say this? Do we really live like Jesus has the final say and authority in our lives? The connection between God the Father and Jesus in our use of our Lord is seen again in Old Testament scriptures. We find God's name to be Yahweh or Kyrdios. In Isaiah 45, 21 to 23, it says, Was it not I, the Lord, Kyrdios? For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will confess allegiance to me. Then in the New Testament, about 750 or so years later, Jesus is revealed to be the same one who bears these name and characteristics. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, says, Therefore, God elevated him, and the him here is Jesus, to the place of highest honor, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Curios, to the glory of God the Father. Do we understand what is being claimed here about Jesus? Paul is reaffirming that Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament and that he is to be given the same worship as God the Father. Jesus is to be praised as our top authority, our Lord. This connection also underscored how believing in Jesus as our Christ and Lord is a continuation of Israel's faith. Jesus is God. Not a God, but the God. Now, for the Jewish listeners of Jesus' and Paul's time, this would have been blasphemous, which is why they tried to kill Jesus. Actually, they did kill Jesus, which we will be talking about more in later weeks. But for today, our first block, it's only 10 words, but it carries so much weight. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. This leads us to our second block for this week. Jesus is not only our Lord, 
he is both divine and human. The creed continues by stating that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Sounds fun to unpack, right? If you haven't had a lot of questions popping up yet, now's probably the time when they're going to start. So thank you, Pastor Jimmy, for giving me this week. As the church, we believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. And I know that the math doesn't seem like it works right for our rational minds. Usually, if there's two things that equal 100% and is equally both things, then it would be 50-50. So our mind wants to think, okay, we have 50% divinity and 50% humanity, but 100% Jesus. But Jesus isn't half God and half human. He's fully God, 100% and fully human, 100%. This was really important, especially during the time it was written in the Greco-Roman culture, because the idea of a half-God, half-human wasn't unique. Their history and theology was rife with stories of gods coming down and impregnating humans and creating what we would call a demigod. You're probably familiar with some of the myths. There's Hercules, um, Achilles, Orion. We have the stories of these half God, half man or woman, but don't be fooled. Jesus is not Percy Jackson. He is 100% God and 100% man. He is not a demigod. He is not 50-50. And if this hurts your brain a little bit, join the club. I completely understand. This is part of the mystery of faith. But what does it say, what does it mean when it says, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? And why is it important? This again is in response to heresy that was already trying to infiltrate the early church. If we remember back to last week, Pastor Jimmy mentioned a group of people called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics are people who thought that everything was evil. And they were trying to claim that Jesus was not really human, but purely a spiritual being. They denied Jesus' physical birth, which would also then deny his physical death and resurrection, because you can't die if you don't have a body. They had no problem with Jesus being divine, but they didn't believe in his humanness. We're going to keep coming back to this because it was one of the primary reasons that this creed was written. The creed and the Bible preach that he is both. In Luke 1, we see that Jesus' mother Mary is approached by the angel Gabriel to tell her, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now Mary had some questions about how this was going to happen, because though she was engaged to be married, she had never been with a man. In Luke 1:35, the angel tells her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. This overshadowing by the Holy Spirit harkens back to what we saw last week 
with God's creation story, with the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters in Genesis, bringing about life to the world. This is a purposeful echo back to the beginning of time with the conception of Jesus. Jesus is divine because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Benjamin Myers in his book, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to Ancient Catechism, puts it this way. Jesus is so permeated by the divine presence that every part of his humanity is filled with divine energy. He is born of a woman. He is conceived by God's spirit. But Jesus wasn't just divine. The other half of the heresy that the church was fighting against was that Jesus wasn't God, but that he was just a human. He was a good teacher, but he was not our Lord. While the story of Jesus's conception seems far-fetched to us today with our modern understanding of biology and how it all works, the idea that God would intervene in the birth of a child is not new in Jewish history. The Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, are filled with stories of children who were born as a result of God's divine intervention. Abraham and Sarah were barren until they had Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah were barren until they had Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Rachel were barren until they had Joseph. Elkanah and Hannah were barren until they had Samuel, and it continued all the way down throughout history until Zechariah and Elizabeth had John the Baptist. So, for early Christians, the virgin birth was just a culmination of the ancient theme of barren women who conceive with God's help. For them, the Holy Spirit planting his seed within Mary so that she could conceive fulfilled their understanding of who God is and was congruent with how he has acted throughout all of history. When the writers of that time referred to the Virgin Mary, they weren't stressing her virginity as a proof of his divinity, but more as a proof of his humanness. It's perhaps even better translated, Mary the Virgin, pointing out a specific woman in time, not the how of the conception. When it comes to Mary, there are a lot of different middle blocks within our tower that the church has disagreed with over the years. But for us today, let's just remember that Jesus had a mom. He was carried in her womb for nine plus months. He had to go through the painful process of being born. And then he was totally dependent on Mary for all of his needs like any other baby would be. He didn't come out quoting scripture or performing miracles. He was fully human which means that he experienced all the same milestones, emotions, joys, and challenges that we face. Jesus's humanity is not in conflict with his divinity. He is 100% divine and 100% human. The Apostle Paul writes about this a lot in his New Testament letters to the early churches. In Philippians chapter two, he tells us, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. While here on earth, 
Jesus accepted his limitations on his divine privileges, and he did not act in his own divine authority. It says throughout the Bible, and especially in the Gospels, that Jesus does only what the Father has taught him, and he only does what he sees the Father doing. Then Paul again writes in Galatians 4.4, But when the right time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us, who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And in Hebrews 10.5, its author says, That is why, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, You did not want animal sacrifice or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. Jesus had a physical body. He was not only spiritual, and he was not only physical. The mystery of our faith embraces that God sent his only son, our Lord, to be born 100% God and 100% human, so that we could be brought back into relationship with him and to create a new covenant with his people. Over the years, people have tried to make too much of either one of these sides, but our faith requires that we believe both. Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I know that the creed was written to address heresy in, in the early church way back in the second century, but as I walked the library these past two summers and have listened to different messages that I have found online, I've realized that we might need this just as much today as we did back then. This is why knowing the building blocks of our faith is so important for us, so that we might be able to spot heresy and false teaching in the church today. I know that our seniors who have recently graduated are getting ready to go off to college, and, and they may have to find a new physical church to belong to, although they are always welcome to stay with us here at Crossbridge Online. But knowing the biblical foundations of our faith that we find in the early creeds of the church, it helps us evaluate and know what a church is teaching so that if they or us need to be finding a church, we, we have something to base it off of and, and not just our feelings. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 7 to beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. In her book, Another Gospel, Elisa Childers says, false teachers creep in unnoticed and secretly bring in distorted ideas about God. They appeal to our passions and desires and tell us what we want to hear. They don't announce themselves wearing sandwich boards that say, hi, I'm a false teacher. Let me scratch those itchy ears. They look like us talk like us, act like us, and claim to be one of us. It's easy to see why they are so effective in tricking many unsuspecting believers. Crossbridge, I don't want us to be unsuspecting believers. I want us to have a solid foundation where we know what our blocks of faith are built on and what issues we can agree to disagree on. 
we as a global church have spent far too much time bickering and disagreeing over middle block ideas. And don't just take my word for it. Read the Bible for yourself. Know what it says. Study it. Ask God for knowledge to understand it. Keep at it and don't give up. This is also why I love that we soap together as a church and that we have a value of being unashamedly biblical. We aim to hold God's truth and want to help equip you to do the same, whether you're on step two or step 52 in your walk of faith. We're all taking one step forward towards Jesus together. So what's your step today when it comes to Jesus? Do you truly believe him? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you allowed other people or other things to take that place of Lord in your life? My hope and prayer for you this week is that you would take time to meditate on these questions as you search God's word. Next week, we will be continuing to look at Jesus because he is central to our faith. We're so glad that you joined us today. We believe that steps of faith happen best in community, and we would love for you to connect and grow with us in a small group here at Crossbridge. Our chat hosts are dropping a link in the chat right now so that you can see all the virtual or in-person groups that we have available. If you have any questions, you're not sure what group is best for you, shoot us a message at prayer at crossbridgecc.org. We cannot wait to help you get connected. We are all about loving God, loving people, and serving the world. If you want to give to help further that mission, you can head over to crossbridgecc.org give for all the ways that you can contribute. 